From Arab Center, Washington, D.C., this is Five Questions. Welcome to Five Questions, a show where we unpack some of the big issues of the day, brought to you by Arab Center, Washington, D.C. I'm Yusuf Munayer. In this episode, we'll be talking about a new book on Palestinians in Latin America. From Chile to Honduras and beyond, Palestinian communities in Latin America often stand out as unlikely immigrant communities on the other side of the world. Now, a new book traces the origins and impacts of these immigration patterns for Palestinians starting over a century ago. Transnational Palestine looks at the experiences of Palestinian migrants and the struggle for the right of return to their homeland well before the Nakba. Joining me to take on five questions on this subject is the book's author, Nadim Bawalsa. Nadim is a historian of modern Palestine and has published in several outlets, including the Jerusalem Quarterly and the Journal of Palestine Studies, as well as many more. He earned a joint doctorate in history and Middle Eastern and Islamic studies from NYU in 2017, and a master's in Arab studies from Georgetown University's Center for Contemporary Arab Studies in 2010. Uh, in 2019-2020, he was awarded a postdoctoral fellowship by the National Endowment for the Humanities and the Palestinian American Research Center to conduct research in Palestine. Currently, Bo also works as the commissioning editor at Al Shabaka, the Palestinian Policy Network, and as a freelance editor for JerusalemStory.com, a website which tells the past and present of Jerusalem through the lens of its Palestinian community. Nadim, welcome to Five Questions. Thank you for having me, Yusuf. It's an honor to be here. Well, let's let's start with question number one. Um, whenever I have someone on to, to talk about a new book, this is where I like to start. What led you to write this book and begin research on this topic? So this actually started as a dissertation project at the dissertation I began in the summer of 2011, or research towards it. Uh, I had been living in New York, and I, had, I was in my second year of the PhD, and I had a, an idea in mind that I wanted to investigate autobiographical sources from the early 20th century uh, to sort of get at Palestinian intellectual thoughts uh, in Palestine. So this meant that I had to go to Palestine and access the archives. Uh, when I arrived in Jerusalem in 2011, I, uh, in June 2011, I uh, uh, spent a few weeks at the archives there and I found a few autobiographical sources that I thought could be interesting. George Antonios, Khayyusik Akini, the sort of big shots of early 20th century Palestinian intellectual thought. Uh, but nothing seemed to jump out at me. So I was struggling to find something worth pursuing an entire dissertation about. And one day, I, uh, my, my colleague and friend, Frederick Mayton, who's now a professor of Palestinian history at New Hampshire, uh, University of New Hampshire, he was looking through uh, folders in the state archives as well in Jerusalem. And he brought a document over to me and said, Nadine, look at this. Does that actually say Mexico? I said, oh my goodness, yes, it does. And what I found was something that I never thought would be a reality about this historical period. Uh, and I knew that this had never been written about. Uh, what I found was uh, several petitions and documents written by Palestinian migrant communities in Mexico, in Monterrey, Mexico, Saltillo, Mexico, and different parts of the northern Mexican corridor. 
as well as Palestinians in Nicaragua and Costa Rica and Chile, Honduras, elsewhere in, the Latin, uh, in, in Latin America. Uh, this was in, uh, in 1926 and 27, and then through the, the 30s. They were demanding in petitions and documents uh, a right to return to Palestine. This struck me as critical, and I, uh, I was convinced that there were many implications to this. So I dug deeper and learned that uh, the British mandate, which was instated in, officially in 1923, uh, promulgated a citizenship law in 1925 through which it would natura naturalize tens of thousands of incoming Jewish settlers at the expense of tens of thousands of Palestinian migrants who'd been immigrating to the Americas starting in the late 19th century. Um, at the expense of their legal right to, to be considered Palestinian citizens and nationals of Palestine. Uh, this right was recognized in 1924 in the Treaty of Lausanne. So uh, I decided to drop the initial project about intellectual history and pursue this one. And I knew that uh, this had not been written about save for a few, um, a few scholars, but it hadn't been investigated sufficiently. So I subsequently secured funding for research in the UK and Latin America between 2012 and 2014. And the sources I found in London and Santiago and elsewhere, I think, speak for themselves and for why this book had to be written. Uh, what I found and what the sources clearly indicated was that Palestinians across the Americas, and especially Latin America, who numbered around 40,000 by 1936, were drafting thousands of petitions and pleas to British consular offices and to the British Mandate government in Jerusalem, as well as to the League of Nations, demanding to have their rights to Palestinian nationality and citizenship recognized by British mandate authorities. Uh, they even used the term birthright to justify their claims to Palestinian nationality. They also talked about this amongst one another across the diaspora in newspapers and clubs and committees. And these are the documents that I found, the first documents I found in Jerusalem. So the right of return is over a century, century old and predates 48 by 23 years. Uh, in, in some ways, 1948 was therefore premeditated, at least insofar as there having been legal precedent for denying the right of return to exiled Palestinians or those who were already residing abroad. Uh, so this is this is how the book came together, and it ha actually was happenstance. And I'm I'm really grateful to my friend uh, Frederick Maiden for finding that document and coming to me to ask me what it said. That's fascinating stuff. Yeah, you, you never know what direction a trip to the archives will will send you on. Um, so I want to ask you, you know, many Palestinians ended up in Latin America. How and why did that happen? And how did Palestinian immigrant experiences differ um, from those of other immigrants from the Middle East? Yeah, this is a great question. Uh, it comes up a lot. Um, so I think it's, it's very important to recognize that the story of Palestinian migration at the turn of the 20th century and starting in the late 19th century cannot be separated from the larger Middle Eastern migration narratives that we know um, that have been written extensively uh, about, especially for the Lebanese and Syrian migrant uh, diaspora communities. There were no borders in greater Syria during, during, Ottoman, uh, during, the, during Ottoman rule. Uh, all were considered Ottoman subjects, even if they identified in different ways, whether Arab, Syrian, Palestinian, Lebanese, or, com or any combination. We actually see this in literature and sources that uh, the terms were quite uh, fluid and used interchangeably. Um, the larger economic and political push and pull factors, as historians of migration uh, refer to them, uh, the push and pull factors for migration were identical. 
uh, for all communities in greater Syria, and they affected the populations uh, similarly. Um, these were, of course, uh, economic hardship, political instability, uh, and so on. The ports of departure were also all the same, Beirut, uh, Jaffa, Alexandria, and so on. And the boats they boarded to immigrate westward were also the same ones. So we're really talking about a collective experience that doesn't get parsed out into nationalities until the mandates uh, in the, during the 1920s and beyond. Uh, the demographics of migrants were also the same. They were mostly young, mostly male, and they were being shipped away to flee Ottoman conscription um, in the Ottoman army, especially during World War I, but also before that, during the Balkan Wars in 19 and the 1910s. Um, they were also fleeing repression. Uh, as we know, the Ottomans had, had become quite authoritarian in their rule towards the last uh, years of their of their empire. They were fleeing severe economic and environmental crises that were causing famine and droughts and unemployment and poverty. And of course, there was tremendous political instability in the region in the decades leading up to World War I, which saw the dismemberment of the Ottoman Empire. Uh, so much of, of this initial story is quite similar for, for these different communities, for Palestinians and, and others in the region. But uh, the patterns of sell, set, settlement in the Americas differed a bit. Uh, the Lebanese were the first to start immigrating and establishing expansive trade networks across the Americas. Uh, the first known Palestinian, uh, excuse me, Lebanese immigrant to the United States was uh, around 1860. Uh, so by the time Palestinians got on boats in Jaffa or Beirut in the 1880s onwards, they mostly landed in hubs across the diaspora that were already saturated with Middle Eastern migrants. Uh, they did this in order to receive credit lines from fellow Arabic-speaking migrants, uh, and then they would venture into peripheral areas on foot, on mule, uh, by train, uh, to tap into new markets, selling uh, souvenirs, Holy Land souvenirs was their most uh, profitable uh, uh, trade. Uh, there's a political scientist, Cecilia Baeza, she describes this phenomenon as Palestinians wanting to avoid suicidal concurrence, which is the idea that setting up shop where the Lebanese or Syrian communities had already saturated the market would be unwise, uh, leading to competition that would uh, benefit neither. Uh, there was not sort of an, an ethos of unity still among immigrants from Syria, greater Syria, that they were all there to help each other. So Palestinians settled in new places, uh, especially in northern Mexico, along the United States frontier, and in Chile. Um, Honduras was also a hub of Palestinian settlement, in fact. Uh, so today, some of the wealthiest and most successful uh, citizens of these countries uh, are Palestinians, uh, as opposed to Lebanese and Syrians, let's say, being more uh, uh, numerous in countries like Brazil and Argentina. Uh, what changes for Palestinians dramatically after 1917, uh, which is the, the arrival of, of British forces into Jerusalem, and the termination of Ottoman rule is in fact the story of the book. So on, on the one hand, Lebanese and Syrians across the diaspora were able to apply for citizenship under the new French mandates of Lebanon and Syria after they were officially instated in 1923. In fact, these migrants were encouraged by French authorities to go to French consulates and apply for citizenship to become Lebanese and Syrian nationals and to become subjects of British, uh, excuse me, of French trusteeship, uh, because they were wealthier, more westernized, and mostly Christians, hence the most desired colonial subjects as far as the French were concerned. 
On the other hand, the British had different plans in Palestine, as we know. They wanted to see to establishing a Jewish national home there, as per the 1917 Belfort Declaration, uh, which means that they already had their desired colonial subject, and this would be the European Jew. Uh, there was no place for Palestinian migrants desiring to return or to secure rights to Palestine and this new colony of theirs, uh, both literally and figuratively. Uh, in fact, Article 7 of the text of the British Mandate for Palestine uh, actually stated that the British government of Palestine would enact a nationality, nationality law with, uh, quote, provisions framed so as to facilitate the acquisition of Palestinian citizenship by Jews who take up their permanent residence in Palestine. So it was clear that this was deliberate. Um, and between 1931 and 1936, 28,000 Jews had been issued Palestinian citizenship documents. And out of a total of nearly 5,000 citizenship documents granted in 1936, uh, more than 4,800 were for Jews. Um, so the documents clearly show that the British simply didn't want Palestinian immigrants to return and that they could circumvent international law and deny them their rightful nationality and citizenship in fact, they were the authors of these laws, after all, and the administration of Palestine fell outside of the purview of international law. Uh, Susan Peterson makes this point quite clearly in her book. Um, the administration of Palestine was effectively left to the discretion of the British crown, uh, not to the League of Nations, uh, which was meant to be the, the administering body of mandates. Uh, they didn't British authorities did not anticipate so many migrants demanding citizenship and a right to return, though. But when they did receive so many petitions and appeals, they simply didn't need to care and just dismiss them, uh, saying these, uh, quite literally saying uh, these, these immigrants cannot prove their patent desirability for the British crown. Um, this is clear as day in the internal communiques between the home, foreign, and colonial offices at the British Archives, at the National Archives in the United Kingdom. And in terms of numbers, by 1937, uh, so about uh, over, well, by 1937, 9,000 applications for citizenship had been submitted from Palestinians in Latin America. Of those, not more than 100 were accepted. Uh, and this is truly what separates Palestinians from the larger Middle Eastern migrant communities in the Americas. Really stunning. Um, you spent a lot of time doing research uh, for this uh, project. Um, you talked about some archival work uh, in Palestine, but also, of course, um, in the uh, British archives as well. Um, what are some of the obstacles you encountered while doing this research and how did you navigate around them? Well, I would say the biggest obstacle is access both in terms of uh, physical access to these archives and uh, more abstractly. So in, term, uh, in terms of entering Palestine to begin with, this is always um, a serious and stressful concern for many of us who are Palestinians and who hold Western passports that would in theory grant us access to Palestine as tourists. Uh, but as many know, the Israeli authorities, uh, whether it, uh, Bengurian Airport or in the Jordanian crossings, which I took, uh, they subject you to, to hours of questioning and humiliating interrogation. And then oftentimes if they find something on you or simply if they are not in a good mood that day, they, they send you packing back home. So uh, this, was a, this was a concern for me, but fortunately I was allowed in in, in 2011. Um, but also access to the archives in Jerusalem, the Israel State Archives as they are known. 
Uh, this was a daily source of worry and concern for me. I was questioned each day when I arrived to the archives and each moment I handed my U.S. passport to the security guard at the entrance, he'd say he'd see that I was born in Jordan and proceed with interrogations and intimidation. Um, so this was sort of the biggest issue for me in the early stages of the research. And then certainly throughout over the years when going to the United Kingdom or to uh, Chile or Mexico, similar issues of access. However, I knew that if I could enter and access the archives in Palestine, certainly uh, the UK and Latin American archives would be easier, which was the case. Um, but then there was the more abstract access. Uh, this project required me to develop working knowledge of Hebrew and Spanish, which I had none when I started. Uh, so I took Hebrew for a year at NYU to learn the alphabet, at least, so I could type phrases like uh, Arab documents or Arab migrants in the archives database. Uh, this is before the State Archive digitized uh, the, the materials into uh, in both Hebrew and English. So now if you go on the Israel State Archive website, you can search in English, which wasn't the case in 2011. Um, I am fluent in French, so that made managing Spanish sources easier. I also learned some important phrases like uh, buscando los documentos de los inmigrantes árabes en Chile, searching for the documents of Arab immigrants in Chile. Uh, but the hardest part was comprehension, uh, and, and in fact, I didn't. I met maybe a handful of, of descendants of Palestinians in Chile who, who spoke English or Arabic, but the rest spoke purely Spanish speakers. Um, Chilean Spanish is wildly different from any sp Spanish spoken anywhere else. It's apparently known to be very fast and very difficult to comprehend for non-Spanish speakers. They drop a lot of consonants uh, while speaking. Uh, so I didn't even try. Uh, but what I managed to do was to secure some funding through the uh, SSRC um, to have my stepfather, who speaks Spanish and who's worked in Chile and other parts of Latin America, to have him join me on my field research in Chile as an interpreter. Uh, he helped me in the archives, in the, uh, in the Biblioteca Nacional, of course, but also everywhere we went, meeting folks, uh, attending events, book talks and, and marches and protests and so on. Uh, oddly enough, that year in 2014, while in Chile, he was starting to lose his memory due to dementia. We hadn't diagnosed it yet, but thankfully, he it was early still, and he managed to uh, to, su to successfully translate and interpret for me in the, in the few weeks that I was there. Uh, otherwise, the biggest challenge I would say was personal, existential. Um, you know, as a Palestinian in exile, whose right of return is not recognized by the powers that be reading these documents, learning this history, and learning about the deliberate and strategic reasons of British colonial forces for denying tens of thousands of Palestinians their rights to Palestinian nationality and citizenship. It was maddening that this, that to realize this through this, this research, it's especially when I was in the British uh, National Archives in London, that I had to request these documents uh, from the very colonial power that ensured our dispossession was, was deeply frustrating. Uh, to say nothing of, of the experience in, in Palestine and, and needing to request and, and uh, access to documents that are rightfully ours from an occupying force. Uh, so I did have to spend some time recovering, truly, uh, just healing after, after these years. But this is what it means to, uh, to work in Palestine studies. Nadim, you talked about that sort of aha moment um earlier on that sent you down this path, uh, finding, finding the word Mexico in one of those, those documents uh, that, that led you to kind of look into this area altogether. I wonder, 
um, when you were carrying out the research for this project, what what was a thing or two that you came across that you would say surprised you the most um, or challenged, you know, your your thoughts about, um, uh, you know, this project and, and the way things the way things uh, you understood them to be before before going in? So I would say that the most surprising thing is, is quite evident. And as you pointed out, that, that it was truly that moment in the, in the State Archive in Jerusalem in 2011 where I thought, there are Palestinians in Mexico. There are Palestinians in Cuba, uh, in, uh, in Colombia and elsewhere in 1926 and 1927, using the language of birthright to demand that British authorities recognize their rights to return and to, to be uh, Legally defined as as Palestinian citizens and nationals, that 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 this history happened and uh, a century ago, and that Palestinians came together in committees, social clubs, uh, the Centro Social Palestino de Monterrey, the uh, uh, the uh, Sirio Palestino Club in Santiago, for example. All these committees were forming in order to draft petitions using the same language of international legal treaties. That their very oppressors drafted and signed on to, to call them out on their abuse of power and to secure their right to return. You, you know that the fact that it's, it's, that it's been over a century since Palestinians across the diaspora, from northern Mexico to the Peruvian and Chilean Andes in, in Sao Paulo or New York, it's been over a century that they were sending petitions in multiple languages, whether to London, Jerusalem, Geneva. Uh, demanding redress and threatening to go to the League of Nations if Britain refused to uh, to afford them their rights. But this all happened and that it's in the record. Uh, but that this all happened, but apart from a few scholars, no one has talked about this or, or, or discussed the larger implications uh, of what it means to have denied the right of return, which is protected by international law and, as we know, in UN resolutions uh, for so much longer than 1948. But this has legal and political precedent, uh, the, the denial of return for Palestinians. This is the ongoing shock for me. So what it, it, what it obviously does is open a lot of avenues for critiquing you know, not only the British crown and holding it accountable for its violations of Palestinian rights for over a century, and certainly the Israeli regime, but also for critiquing how international law is or isn't implemented. The fact that certain regimes of power can simply overlook or circumvent it with impunity, and we know Israel has mastered this, casts a lot of doubt on whether national law is relevant or needed when it comes to defending uh, whole people's so-called legal and inalienable rights. Uh, the language of rights, does it actually carry any weight in liberation struggles? Is social just in social justice struggles? Do we need a new framework to think about international law? Can this new framework actually include non-white representation and non-white voices? In other words, can Palestinians and of course countless marginalized populations of color across the world, can they take part in forming the laws that would literally determine their daily freedoms, whether to move, to sleep, to eat, to work, to marry? We saw Israel's recent attempt this summer to stop Palestinians from falling in love. I mean, isn't it time we radically reimagine and then actively transform international law if it's, if, if it's a body of, of rights, supposedly, uh, that protects individuals across the world, yet clearly only some. Isn't it time that this framework uh, is changed? And so this is sort of the ongoing 
reality for me, uh, the shock is that uh, the longevity of this narrative, of the, of the struggle of the right of return, and how little has been done to change the fundamentals around it. You know, the book is called Transnational uh, Palestine. And um, when we think about transnationalism, we often think about that as sort of um, a, a very recent way of thinking about uh, things, particularly in the Palestinian context, at least a, a post-Nakba experience. Uh, and what I find interesting about your work um, and the work of some others, um, really fascinating, is um, the extent of uh, really global connections and activism around this issue, uh, around Palestine, that predated even the the mass dispersal of Palestinians across national boundaries um, uh, during um, during 1948. Um, and so, you know, I wonder what would you say are some uh, current day implications uh, that can be gleaned. Uh, from your research in, in a moment when uh, the world is far more interconnected or more globalized than it was a hundred years ago when there was nonetheless so much um, activity and demand uh, for uh, Palestinian rights among these communities? Great question and, and I think very important, uh, but it's also quite complicated because on the one hand you have the, the legal apparatus that is dominating much of our world. And then, as you mentioned, we have that sort of grassroots popular uh, solidarity that we're seeing. Um, I think on the one hand, this what this book can do, and this was something that one of the endorsers of the book, Sarah, Sarah Gacchieri, um, what she said was that this is a, a critical read for uh, student scholar activists uh, in building these, the, the, greater awareness about the longevity of these struggles, uh, especially when it comes to Palestine. Um, so I, I do hope that what this book can offer for students and for scholars and activists is, is, is more substance for why these solidarity movements should exist on a transnational level. Um, the, the struggle for Palestine has never been solely uh, limited to geographic Palestine. We tend to think when we think of the struggle and the liberation struggle, we think of it as, as sort of within, between the river and the sea. Uh, but it really has been a transnational struggle for over 100 years. Um, but the, 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 I think the more lasting and possibly more impactful uh, implication of this book is actually, I, I wrote about it recently uh, in an article for Shabaka where I work. It's titled uh, The Case for Palestinian Nationality. Um, it's, it's truly... What's implied in, in this research is that there is still a legal avenue for pursuing, uh, for defending Palestinian rights to Palestinian nationality from wherever they are in the diaspora. Of course, this, this is complicated and has to do with consensus, with strategy, uh, and so on. But it's, and it's certainly it's something that a corrupt Palestinian leadership may or may not be a willing uh, to pursue. That also has to do with international law. Uh, and there are clear limitations with using it in the case of Palestine. Uh, but there are still avenues to pursue. Um, and so, so the idea is that citizenship and nationality are fundamentally different. And these are the two that uh, governments tend to conflate, in fact, deliberately, as I argue in the article. Citizenship is an agreement between an individual and the state, and it regulates the relationship between the two. In other words, citizens agree to rules, laws, 
uh, instructions dictated by the state, and in return, states give them rights, privileges, and so on. Travel, of course, is one of these privileges. Without a passport that is uh, issued by a state, you are forbidden from travel. Uh, in, in this relationship, states can also revoke citizenship for breaches of terms. But nationality has nothing to do with states. Nationality is protected by international law and is defined as the genuine link between individuals and the land, not the state. This link can be determined through blood, through birth, or residency. And nationality affords you global representation and protection by the state, whichever state is operating on that land, wherever you are in the world. And it affords you rights to ownership, inheritance, employment, and so on, on that land. The Treaty of Lausanne, uh, ratified in 1924, uh, in fact, announced to promulgated Palestinian nationality globally and confirmed the genuine link between Palestinians anywhere in the world to the land of Palestine. Uh, Article 34 of the treaty made provisions for Palestinian migrants or, for, or Palestinians who were not on the land at the time of the, uh, the treaty which enabled individuals who identified as Palestinian, who had rights to Palestinian, uh, Palestinian nationality, to declare the nationality of the territory of which they are natives. Uh, that Britain denied this through the 1925 citizenship ordinance has no bearing on Palestinians' rights to be Palestinian nationals. Israel also contravened international law through its many apartheid laws, including uh, as early as 1952 with the, nation the 1952 nationality law, which conferred Jewish nationality on Jews across the world. And then in 2018, we see the nation state law, which confirmed that the right to national self-determination is unique to the Jewish people. In other words, the Israeli regime has made sure that Palestinians who have acquired, let's say, Israeli citizenship through residence can never become incorporated as nationals of the state, making it easier to revoke their citizenship. But also in 1948, when it was formed, it retroactively repealed any citizenship documents that Palestinians may have acquired during the British period. So any Palestinian who received Palestinian citizenship during the British mandate was no longer considered a citizen of Palestine. Uh, Israel also made sure that no Palestinian expelled in 48 could qualify for Palestinian nationality or Israeli citizenship since, since they are neither Jewish nor can be naturalized from afar. This is part of the, the 1952 law. So under this law, to qualify for Israeli citizenship through residence, Palestinians have, would have had to have been inhabitants of 1948 territories by March 1st, 1952. And they would have had to have remained inhabitants from the day the state was established until the day the nationality law was passed. Of course, none of the Palestinians expelled in 48 could qualify under this provision. But this was a nationality law when, in fact, Israel had no right to confer nationality on Palestinians. Um, so what this implies is that in order to defend the rights of Palestinians to their nationality, there needs to be a state which can afford them eventual citizenship and safeguard their nationality in global forms. This certainly can't be done through the Palestinian Authority, which is limited to the West Bank and Gaza and its mandate, according to the Oslo Accords. So it has to be done through the PLO, the supposed representative of the Palestinian people, wherever they may be. And in 2012, the UN afforded Palestine de jure sovereignty as a state, and the PLO that year drafted a nationality law, saying that Palestinian citizens are those who have the right to claim Palestinian nationality as of August 6, 1924, when the Treaty of Lausanne was ratified. But guess what? The Palestinian Legislative Council, which is the legislator of the Palestinian Authority, 
declined to consider the law since it would require the PLO or necessitate that the PLO would supersede the PA. So it's all a mess of corruption and power mongering at the expense of more than 7 million Palestinians across the world today who have rights to be considered nationals and therefore to lay claims to and in Palestine from anywhere in the world. Uh, the PLO may be all but disintegrated, but its diplomatic corps, which represents Palestinians in exile, needs to be revived to guarantee the rights of Palestinians to nationality. And the Palestinian people in exile, all of us, need to help it do so. Um, so some things that I suggest in, in the article is that what can be done to, to get us closer to securing these rights. Uh, first of all, uh, the PLO, the, the Palestinian diplomatic uh, or its diplomatic corps, uh, as well as Palestinians, must create forums across the world to gather and determine the criteria for who qualifies to, to register for Palestinian nationality. Of course, the Treaty of Lausanne makes provisions for this, whether it's through blood, birth, or long-term residence. But Palestinians should be the ones to articulate these rights in their own terms. Uh, indigenous communities across the Americas have been discussing this for decades. You know, the idea of blood quantum or how much indigenous blood do you have is a colonial practice uh, that shouldn't be, uh, you know, sort of revived in the case of Palestinians. Um, Palestinians need to move away from this and decide what are the criteria for defining who's Palestinian? Is it lived experience? Is it shared linguistic or cultural or even traditional practices? We have tons of migration within the region that predates the borders we have today. Uh, does that mean that someone who had come from Mount Lebanon and settled in Jerusalem, does that mean that they are not Palestinian because their blood isn't from that very land? But does the experience of expulsion from 48, for example, uh, in 1948, does that qualify them for citizenship? In any case, Palestinians need to come together and determine these criteria. Once that's determined, Palestinians need to issue a population registry of exiled Palestinians. They need to start with the 5 million refugees registered with UNRWA. Uh, Karman Abilsi tried to do this a few years ago, but from what I understand, she came up against another brick wall, uh, not the Israelis, but Palestinian leadership. But the reg a registry is the only way to determine the number of Palestinians in the world who qualify uh, for Palestinian nationality. Um, and then they would need to draft a comprehensive nationality law that would lay the groundwork for conferring citizenship at a later point. Uh, finally, and until it's possible for this to happen, the PLO needs to legally support and represent Palestinians residing in foreign countries, uh, such as myself, and holding secondary citizenship who demand to be recognized as Palestinian nationals by their host states. Uh, this includes demanding to hold Israel and even Britain accountable for contravening international law uh, and denying millions of expelled and exiled Palestinians uh, these, these fundamental rights. I believe that this must be done in every state on the planet where Palestinians reside. Uh, and if this book, uh, this, ar this argument is not made in the book since it's a more of a historical academic text, but if this were to be read in conjunction with, for example, the article I wrote or an article worked by uh, Susan Akram or Matas Kafiche, who are legal historians, I'm sorry, legal uh, experts who work on refugee rights and exile rights, there is a, there is a huge case to be made uh, for why over 7 million Palestinians across the world uh, have a fundamental right that needs to be activated uh, in order to secure uh, this genuine link to the land is uh, in order to preserve this genuine Yeah, I would say it's a huge case indeed. Well, uh, that brings us to the end of our conversation for today, uh, Nadine. 
Uh, thank you so much for taking on five questions about your new book, Transnational Palestine, and breaking this all down for us today. Thank you so much for having me, Yusuf. Thank you for listening to Five Questions, a podcast by Arab Center, Washington, D.C. We invite you to subscribe to this podcast so you can receive announcements about upcoming episodes. Please visit our website, ArabCenterDC.org, to learn more about our work and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube.